Welcome to The Plot Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. The Plot is a co-promotion of Odessa Steps Magazine and the When It Was Cool Network. Recently on the When It Was Cool Patreon, I had brought up whether or not Carl would do a review in the future of American Flag and whether that would actually fit under the family-friendly umbrella that they have for the network. And Carl said, I haven't read it recently, but I don't see any problem with that being discussed here. And, well, I took the bull by the horns and I'm going to discuss American Flag before Carl gets the chance because it's one of my favorite books of the 1980s. But then I thought, what can I pair with American Flag? Another dystopian comic from the time, like V for Vendetta or something like that? And I thought, no, I reread American Flag, and among one of the things I had forgotten about the book is that one of the key factors in the story is the use of subliminal advertising. And I thought, that's a good thing that we could discuss here on the pod, uh, subliminal advertising in pop culture. And then I thought, what, would, what could I pair with American Flag? And then I realized that American Flag came out in 1983, and not too many years later came the original British pilot for Max Headroom, before he had his chat show, and before he had his American TV show, and before he became a spokesman for Coke, Coca-Cola. That uh, the main plot of the pilot episode of Max Headroom is subliminal advertising. And I thought these two will go very well together. And so that's what we're going to discuss today on the pod. Now, for those of you who don't know what subliminal advertising or subliminal messaging is, it's very simple. It's when you hide a message in a work of popular culture, be it music or film or TV or what have you, to elicit emotions or suggestions in the viewer slash reader slash whatever. During the 1980s, this became a popular topic with backward masking on records, particularly heavy metal records, um, that was crusaded against by people like Tipper Gore and the PMRC, who said that heavy metal bands were hiding messages about making people commit suicide and things like that. The same sort of fervent hysteria they tr- people tried to bring up against things like Dungeons and Dragons at the same time. So, in that kind con- popular culture has been full of uh, this as a topic for a long time. In the 1960s, there was a book tie-in to The Man from U.N.C.L.E., which we've talked about on a previous show, that was all about using subliminal messaging to brainwash people. And in a way, the Manchurian Candidate, another thing about brainwashing and political assassination and spies and things like that, uses you know, something you could probably call subliminal messaging with, with the way the Chinese brainwash Lawrence Harvey into trying to kill the senator and things like that. So anyway, that's what we're going to be talking about today. First up, one of my favorite comic books of all time, Howard Chicken's American Flag. Well, I'm Uncle Sam. That's who I am. Out in hiding now. In a rock and roll band. You shake the hand. I shook the So can I describe American Flag in a one-sentence elevator pitch? Probably not. Howard Chaykin probably could, but I can't. So it's a science fiction series that is heavily into political satire, but also plenty of humor and also 
plenty of sex, although most of it off-screen, but certainly heavily implied and plenty of innuendo. So it said in 2031, Earth has been ravaged by a series of events, which we'll get to in a second, and most of the and the American government has been relocated to Mars. And what's left in what's left of the United States are a series of megalopolis cities called plexes, like the Dallas Metroplex, which you may know from all of our constant wrestling talk. The main plex that is the center of American flag, at least the first year's worth of stories, is Chicago. And that's where we find our protagonist, I would hate to call him a hero, at least at the beginning, Reuben Flagg arrives. He has been an actor starring in a video called Mark Thrust Sexus Ranger on Mars, and he's been replaced by a hologram, and he's turned up and been deputized as a Plexus Ranger, who are sort of the law enforcement in the United States, and he's been assigned to the Chicago branch. He meets Hammerhead Krieger, who is his boss and the chief cop at the Chicago Plex. He meets his daughter, Mandy, who becomes one of his early love interests. He meets the mayor, C.K. Blitz, who has a pair of robot bodyguards named Bert and Ernie, which we learn is a private joke that no one under 40 gets. Remember, this is said in 2031. And we soon find out that flag because he is born on Mars unlike everyone else when watching the TV that is produced by the Plex and broadcast in Chicago contains subliminal messaging specifically a show called Bob Violence that is designed to elicit and stir up trouble with all the various go gangs that are surround Chicago much like all the gangs in the Warriors and flag is the only person that can see the, this messaging, except for Hammerhead's pet cat named Raul, who can talk and has little metal hands. After subduing the gangs, Flag tries to figure out how he can curtail this problem, and Mandy finds a little-known bylaw in the Plex laws that say, quote, in time of extreme civil disorder, a ranger may, of his own volition, reorder or preempt civilian programming for the public good, and she says, I'd say weekly assaults by terrorists qualifies as extreme civil disorder. Of course, Hammerhead doesn't like this idea, but he does it anyway. And so that's off the, the chain of events that get us. That's how the first issue ends. Uh, we soon have things happen like Hammerhead is murdered and we don't know who did it. All signs point to the mayor's daughter, Medea, who is the girlfriend of one of the biker leaders. And then it turns out it gets much more complicated than that. We get an introduction of a few other characters, including a jewelry salesman named John Scheifskopf. And if you know you're German, you can tell he's not going to be a good guy in this story. Uh, spoiler alert, it turns out he's actually an undercover Plexus internal affairs auditor, and he's the one that killed Hammerhead. Flag gets his revenge on Shyaskov by the end of the first arc by strapping him to a nuclear warhead and then sending it into the Go Gangs. But don't worry, Shyaskov comes back a few issues later as a cyborg. So you can tell just how crazy this story is getting, and this is only the first year we're talking about. Later the in the book, 
at least when Chekin is writing, we start going to other places around the world, including Brazil, which is turned into just one of the economic powerhouses still left on Earth. Calgary, England, which is home to Bill, who is the youngest member of the Witnesses, a gang of octogenarian rebels who run a pirate radio station, who we later learn is William Windsor Jones, who is actually the now-abolished King William. So that part's at least one step closer to happening than it was when this book was written in 1983. It's hard to explain to readers now that weren't around back in the 80s just how revolutionary a book American Flag was, especially to a young teenager who had only been reading Marvel in DC and had only started going into comic shops where you could find independent publishers like First who published American Flag and Capital and things like that. And that's when you first got to see things like Nexus and Love and Rockets, you know, which would come a little bit later, and ElfQuest and all those kind of things that you just didn't see if you were buying your books at the 7-Eleven or what have you. And of course, in hindsight, should 13-year-old me have been reading American Flag? Well, maybe, maybe not. You could argue it's a PG comic. It's certainly not an R-rated comic book like the kind, you know, it's not Black Kiss that Howard Chaykin would do a few years later that was definitely R, if not harder than R with his terms of, with its sex and violence and other things. Flag also looked different than most DC or Marvel comics. Chaykin, of course, had worked for both in the 70s and 80s before this, but his the art style that he developed on this book, along with the revolutionary lettering by Ken Brusenak, which became famous and led the series to all kinds of awards, one of the things the lettering helped stand out is all the crazy futuristic words that Chaykin would invent that became part of American Flag's glossary, not unlike something like A Clockwork Orange. There was a great article in Amazing Heroes in September of 1984 that listed some of them, and here are just a few. Manana Cillin, a combination oral contraceptive and antibiotic whose prolonged use resulted in sterilization. Somnambutol, a recreational sedative in commercial doses, it was hallucinogenic and in larger doses produces instant slumber. The Plexus Rangers used something called Snowball 99, also called Caligari's Equalizer, which launched a frozen globe of somnambutol uses against their rioting go-gangs. And Subjecticam, a news camera that gives the viewer the same point of view as the reporter, which we'll actually see show up in just a few minutes in Max Headroom. Flag also had a great had a great collection of uh, protagonists and antagonist names like Sam Louis Obispo, Arcadia Driftwood, and sometimes Flag girlfriend Crystal Gera Marakova. I mentioned what caused all these calamitous things to happen. Well, it was called the year of the domino, and it was 1996, a year of natural, political, and economic disasters, including the meltdown of the East Coast, worldwide crop failure, the Russian-Islamic revolution, food riots in Western Europe, the Black Plague in Asia, the collapse of the international banking system, the Iran-Israel nuclear exchange, the German nuclear bombing of London, the submergence of California, and the relocation of the American government to Mars.
you know, some of those sound disturbingly familiar, although they didn't happen in 1996. So that's your brief snapshot of American flag. This is definitely something I will revisit in the future, perhaps on the other podcast. I only realized today while doing research that I've actually had two guests on the Winter Palace podcast who wrote American Flag after Chaikin left to do other projects, Stephen Grant and J.M. DeMattis. So maybe we, when those guys come back on the show, I'll remember to ask them about Flag because I don't believe I did the first time. So that's American Flag. Only a few short years later, Although, according to the show, it's 20 minutes into the future. It's ma- I'll take over now. And let's have a little taste of it. Yes, a little taste of that old computer-generated... ...swoot-swoot-wagger. Yes. As I said, you may remember Max Headroom from the soda commercials or from the music videos or from when that guy had that weird hacked pirate broadcasting and used some sort of version of Max Headroom as his avatar or the American television show that ran on ABC for a year or two. All of those came after the British pilot, which was actually created to give a backstory to Max Headroom when his chat show debuted on Channel 4 in 1985. If you've never seen the show before, it's very of its time cyberpunky. Dystopian future, garbage everywhere, electronics, foreign languages, etc., etc. The plot centers around Network 23 and its ace reporter, Edison Carter, who is played by... Matt Frewer, some of you may remember from the very funny but short-lived sitcom in the 80s called Dr. Doctor and an appearance on Star Trek The Next Generation. He is investigating a death that took place in a residential block of flats where the details are very sketchy, but we soon cut to the boardroom of Edison's television network, which is Network 23, And it's run by a guy named Grossberg. And as you might imagine, if a guy's named Grossberg, he's not going to be the good guy. We soon learn that the guy exploded due to something Grossberg had created by his teenage scientist assistant named Bryce. And that is something called Blipverts. Hello there, Bryce. I need to talk to you about... I'm rather busy. I've succeeded in computer generating a parrot on the screen. Oh, my congratulations. Whatever next. It squawks. Um, I wonder if you could find time to uh, illustrate to the board here this little hitch we have on your blipperts. Put simply, the human body has millions of nerve endings. Each carries an electrical charge, individually very tiny, but in combination surprisingly large. Normally people burn it off, but in inactive people it just builds up. Now, because I designed Blipverts to compress 30 seconds of advertising information into three seconds, it appears the brain violently stimulates these nerve endings simultaneously. In some subjects, it causes a short circuit, 
some particularly slothful, perpetual viewers literally explode. As simple as that. I've got rather a good example of one on this Rebus tape. Oh. Oh. It won't be so damn simple when Blipverts go global. My God. Oh, look here, the only people who are that inactive are pensioners, the sick, or the unemployed. I take it that your Rebus tape is in an extremely safe place. Of course. But look, it's not my problem. My brief was to find a way to stop channel switching. I mean, you know, I only invent the bomb. I don't drop it. <laughs> <laughs> we think it might affect sales if uh, people begin to suspect. Uh... Well, don't tell them then. Unfortunately, one of our reporters may have got quite near the truth. We have to be very careful. Well, fire him. We could always kill him. What's funny is that in the American version, Brace actually turns babyface by the end of the pilot and is not just some young, sniveling teenage Werner von Braun. This leads Edison and his new editor-slash-controller, Theora, who was played in the British pilot by Amanda Pays, one of the few characters who is in both the British and American versions, they break into Bryce's lab and see the Rebus tape, which is when we actually see the guy explode. Earlier, what we didn't see there was a little computer-generated version of the guy exploding with graphics that were very reminiscent, if you've seen it, of the 1980s Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy television show. The animations for the guide look very similar to the animation that we got here. Edison is eventually chased down by some of Bryce's goons and while on a motorcycle and in a battle between Theora and Bryce in a weird sort of computer hacking duel they are raising and lowering the barrier for Edison to exit the Network 23 building and the barrier says on it maximum headroom etc etc and if you didn't know, that's the last thing Edison sees before he's quote-unquote killed. And so his last memory is seeing the words Max Headroom. And that's how, when Bryce creates the computer-generated version of Edison's brain, he takes Max Headroom as his name. It stands for Maximum Headroom. Uh, Edison is not dead, of course, because obviously there's another series coming. So he eventually gets dumped into a body bag morgue but rescued by Fiora and then eventually through various means uh, you know they win the day they show up at Grossberg's press conference where he's actually announcing Edison's Carter's death with the blipvert tape and then has him comment on it live on television which of course leads to Grossberg's termination as network president and that's the end of the British pilot. The American version, you know, is a little more softer and has a happier ending. And that leads to Edison and Theora's adventures along with Bryce and Murray, who is sort of their Perry White. And the good network executive who we briefly heard in that clip with Grossberg who's played by George Coe in the American version, and Murray is played by 
Jeffrey Tambor of Larry Sanders and other show fame slash infamy now. It's not a stretch to say the American version of Max Headroom was ahead of its time, which, as you might expect, for a science fiction show in the 1980s means it was very shortly canceled. It had two seasons with 14 episodes, from one of which doesn't air. Not only was it a show that was darkly critical of television as a satire not going to last in 1987, it wasn't helped by being programmed against Dallas and Miami Vice. So you can see that uh, it really had no chance, realistically. But of course, it was aired on cable over the years in the 90s and the 2000s, and like I said, you can now get it on video and streaming and things like that. It's definitely of its time, being very cyberpunky of the 1980s, but given the way television is now with its hundreds of channels and thirst for competition, it would probably fit right in for a reboot in 2023. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you haven't gone to the Winter Palace podcast feed, you may not know that we recently did a podcast with Mark Wade talking about continuity in comics and some of his upcoming new stuff, and with longtime veteran wrestler Pat Rose talking about his time, particularly working in the South for in Memphis, Continental, and my favorite unknown indie 1987 promotion, World Organization Wrestling. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to everybody next time.